On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Adam Procise of Reeb Cycles in Lyons, Colorado. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, and yeah, I know it's been more than a week, I'm sorry, it's been like eight months, but anyway, each week on the show, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building business, and I try to help them tell their story, and this week it's Adam from Reeb Bikes. Uh, Reeb is a cool company with a cool history, so Adam tries to tell that story as best as he knows it, and and he's telling his own story from you know being sort of a, a Midwest Iowa kid moving to Colorado right after graduating college with an agronomy degree and finding his way into a cool medical machine shop that really gave him a lot of the toolkit and experiences that is helping him excel now at a bicycle company. So we talked actually about the machine shop phase, you know, five years that he worked uh, as a maintenance manager, and uh, that was actually really cool. But anyway, that kind of led into what he's doing now with Reeb Cycles, designing and fabricating and building bikes, sort of running the shop, CNC, manual machine, TIG welding, a lot of bike design. Adam is a hell of a rider, really strong rider. And so, you know, how does that riding inform the bikes? And then he has sort of a side hustle, personal metalworking shop called Procise Metalworking. He has a bunch of, you know, metal fabrication tools and recently picked up like a cherry CNC milling machine, a Fidal from the 90s, really cool machine, and he's making beautiful stuff that is uh, impressive to me, and I do this stuff full-time, uh, so yeah, really cool, talented guy, here's his story. My name's Adam Procise, I work full-time for Reeb Cycles building mountain bike frames, and then I also run my own little side metal working hobby slash business in my home garage. I kind of grew up uh, in a garage, uh, working on old classic classic cars, mostly Chevy Corvairs. So it's kind of the the weird sports car, cheap sports car that Chevy did. It's a rear engine, rear engine six cylinder, super fun cars. But my dad was a mechanical engineer at John Deere, and we just loved to work out of toolboxes and and work on cars and do home projects and kind of do everything. I have two older brothers. We all rode bikes together as a family growing up. So throughout my life, I always had a bunch of bikes. Uh, we always went to the local bike shop and bought Schwinn's, uh, you know, high quality bikes that were, you know, originally made in the U.S., but later not. And then yeah, my middle brother got me into riding BMX bikes and Standard Bike Company was the big bike company in town and they had a local shop and and they uh, they had a big skate park. Loved riding in skate parks. And in the early days, they produced everything at Waterford, up in Wisconsin. And then when I was in high school, I started wanting to look into bikes that fit me better. Um, I'm six foot four, um, and I ride bikes pretty hard. So I wasn't necessarily breaking stuff back then, but. Uh, 20 inch bikes just felt a little small. So kind of my entrance into custom frame building was hiring standard to build me a custom 24 inch uh, BMX bike. Uh, 
24 inch BMX bikes have always been uh, like the race bike, but there wasn't one that was really built for street riding to like run pegs and stuff like that. So um, they actually moved all of their um, operation in house in Davenport, Iowa, and they built me a custom frame and I was kind of hooked from then on. So it's definitely been a whirl, whirlwind since then, but um, they definitely kind of planted the seed on, on custom local frame building for me. How old were you when you had that experience? Uh, I was a senior, junior, senior in high school, so 17 years old or so. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do you and, still have um, that bike? I do. Um, it's kind of one of those bikes that you can't really get rid of. It's still, I mean, it's an awesome bike. I, I rode it a ton, uh, but it was kind of in this uh, in-between stage of availability of parts for 24-inch BMX. Uh, you could find like, you know, 1.95-inch wide race tires, but you couldn't really find like the, you know, 100 PSI 2.2s that were popular for riding like street BMX. So it's kind of a odd, it's got like skinny tires, but it's built for dirt jumping and for skate parks. So it's kind of an interesting bike, but it's, I mean, bomb proof since pretty much the, the way I built it, I destroyed a rim and I put some taller handlebars on it. Otherwise it's like as built from 18 years old and it's still rad and in one piece. That's awesome. Yeah. So you had that experience and that got you interested in that. And then, and then what else happened along the way? Um, pretty much after that, um, I guess that was kind of my exit from, you know, actual BMX. Uh, once you get bigger wheels, you realize that they roll a little bit better and they're, you know, a little bit more compliant. So I wanted uh, standard to build me a dirt jumper and this was something that was like, you know, way extreme for them at this point, you know, um, mountain bike width, bottom brackets, um, wider rear ends, disc brakes. Um, so they needed a lot of the design and, and part, uh, parts for the bike so they could, you know, test fit everything. So I just, uh, my dad being a mechanical engineer, um, I grew up, you know, being able to dabble in AutoCAD, I was never, I would say I was useless until I moved to Colorado with it. But, you know, I knew what the function was. I could like draw simple 2D objects, but, you know, nothing crazy. And so I wanted to help Standard with um, doing a full-size drawing of the frame to make sure everything was going to go well. And so I kind of talked to my dad a little bit about drafting and got some tips on, on how to like properly do a full scale drawing of a bicycle frame. And I did it. And it's, uh, I don't know if many people know of Peter Verdone, but he has a very good argument on why drawing full size bikes on paper doesn't work, um, to build, <laughs> to build a perfect bicycle frame. Cause you, know, you could, you could be off, um, you know, easily a couple of millimeters and definitely by a couple of degrees if you're using like, you know, a typical drafting protractor. 
So we built that first frame and I believe that one actually went to my brother. Uh, my brother still rides bikes uh, just as hard as I do. Um, so I think we did a dirt jump frame for him and it came out great. I wouldn't say it was perfect. I think the head angle ended up being um, a little steep, but um, he still has that bike to this day and it's, and it's an awesome bike. So, you know, fast forward two, three years, um, we, we as in standard and I both got better with communication, uh, having parts available for test fitting things and making better drawings. Um, I was using bike CAD, um, after I did like two drawings on paper, I realized bike CAD was the way to go and, <laughs> and drew everything else in yeah. bike CAD and they built me a three pound cycle cross race bike, um, out of all true temper S3 tubing, super rad, like 17 pound extra large cross bike. That was pretty ridiculous. Um, they built me a handful of 29 inch single speeds that had some like really cool vintage BMX, like Hutch Trickstar vibe gussets on the head tube. Um, and then a dirt, a dirt jumper for myself. And then more recently before Reeb, they built me, um, a kind of like enduro hardtail. That was a, a geared hardtail that was like super slack at 67 degree head angle. And, you know, slack for an Iowa boy that I was. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, and that's pretty much where I moved to Colorado and realized that the connection between standard and I was just too much or the, the distance was too great. It was like a long distance relationship, you know, miscommunication and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, more of a pain in the butt to make sure everything's going well and keeping them on task because they're a BMX frame company. They're not a mountain bike frame company. So, um, I went to college for agronomy, which, um, my dad being a mechanical engineer and my brother being my oldest brother being an engineer, I kind of just saw them or heard about them working in cubicles and, you know, sitting in front of a computer for most of the time. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be outdoors. So, uh, I've never been on a farm. I've never li- never lived on a farm, never really wanted to run a farm or anything like that. Uh, but agronomy sounded pretty cool. It's uh, soil science. So um, I was thinking I wanted to move to Colorado and like do something with natural resources. Um, but I was kind of just shooting from the hip at that point, I think. Um, yeah. So yeah, I... I well, graduated from that, college. <clears throat> yep, go ahead. I was just going to say that's something I talked with uh, one or two of my guests on the show before is that I think frame building scratches that itch and not just frame building, also machining and welding and all sorts of stuff that uh, people who like making things, they, when they're, you know, 17, 18 years old trying to decide what they're going to do with their life. If you're like me, your parents are like, oh, you should go to college. And then, you know, anyway, if you think engineering sounds cool, well, yeah, it does sound cool. And you're probably going to learn really cool stuff. But the reality of that for a lot of people 
is that uh, most of the jobs that you can easily land with that, yeah, are going to like stick you in a cubicle or, you know, you're going to be somebody else does some project and then they just want you to like sign off on it and approve it and say that like this is structurally sound and now they've kind of covered their ass or whatever it is. There's a lot of the jobs that I hear about for engineering are like actually not that cool of jobs, which is a shame. And so, you know, what a what a great gift it is that for those of us who like making stuff, you don't, that's not your only option. You can actually just buy some machines and stuff them in your garage and start making stuff. Or you can go to a company that makes stuff and you can say, hey, I don't really have a degree or anything, but I think I could figure this out. And then a lot of times you can get hired. And it's, to me, it's a really special thing that uh, that's not your only option. Because I think a lot of people who go into engineering, what they really want is they want to be more hands-on. Yeah, and I think, I, I guess, um, I don't know if that's like a, common misconception or if that's kind of how engineering was portrayed in like popular mechanics or, you know, a magazine like that in the sixties and seventies. But, um, you know, you always thought of an engineer as being something that somebody that like created a, a thing, you know, they, they created a widget or like they invented it or they figured out how to make it. But, um, you know, it's, they're the ones that maybe, thought about it and came up with the idea, but it's actually somebody else in the shop that's making it. And I've always been very intrigued by uh, making things. Um, again, like saying, like I grew up in a garage, we, we, we wrenched on cars. We didn't do restorations. Uh, we didn't always buy new parts and just bolt them on. Uh, we did a lot of just refurbishment and we just drove them. Like we, um, my brothers and I all drove Corvairs to high school and we had to buy them. We had to wrench on them and we had to maintain them. So, you know, that, that taught me a lot where it was like, Oh, like I want to go do something on the weekend, but I was installing headers on my car and I broke a stud and now <laughs> I can't drive. Like, you know, it's the, the problem solving skills that, you know, when, when you're kind of being scrappy with things, you, you figure out how to, um, figure out fix stuff. And like, you know, you just bought that awesome automatic bandsaw and, you know, you saved a bunch yeah. of money on buying a new one, but you realize that at the end of the day, you probably spent just as much money and time fixing it, yeah. but you yeah, learned a sure. lot of things along the way and you're probably yeah, you're probably better at operating that saw now. Yeah. Like, rather and it's, than it's like, less intimidating, too, because it's got such a mess of hydraulic stuff. And I was like, oh, there's leaks. And you just, like, cringe. It's just like, oh, leaks. It could be coming from anywhere. But, like, by the time <laughs> you actually get in there and you fix it, when you finally find what it was that was leaking and there's, like, a smoking gun and you fix that and it's not leaking anymore, it's like... The world just becomes so much less mystical. It's like, oh, okay, there are problems and there are solutions. I won't always find the easy solution, but, like, there's probably always something I can do. And it's very empowering to realize that, like, stuff is within your control, even when it feels kind of overwhelming at first. And, um, yeah, so it's like, yeah, I know the machine now. I can fix it again much easier. You know, there's there's a lot of benefits to that sort of work. I feel so much more capable. Like my old leaky truck, it's like, that seems less intimidating to me now. It's like... After having some wins with these other leaks, it's like, you know, if I need to, I'll solve some other leaks too. It's like, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I know all about the old leaky trucks. Um, I, <laughs> I tend to purchase vehicles 
based on passion over, um, you know, mechanical ability of the vehicle, because I know that I can, I can work out problems and, and, you know, figure it out better than most people can, because I've been, I've been doing this forever. Um, you know, like, yeah. I, I would say I'm more of a, I started off more as an auto mechanic or like garage jack of all trades mechanic. Um, but I actually don't really like working on cars. <laughs> um, it's more, yeah, nobody does. Yeah. It's, it's fun sometimes, but <laughs> most of the time it's like yeah. you, you are spending an entire weekend doing something and then you realize that it's just like snowballing and yeah, but that's why you just buy more cars because then one drives, the other one doesn't drive. <laughs> yeah, it's like you got four four bikes in your in your tiny apartment or something. Is my situation? You always got like four of them, and like two of them don't have pedals, and one of them's got a flat. <laughs> you know? Or oh like yeah. You rob the brakes off of the one for the others. It's like, but there's usually at least there's one you can ride. But yeah, yeah it's like I mean, that's it's it's bad. I'm the same way, especially right now in the state of the bike industry. Like I have, um, I have an awesome ridiculous, uh, single speed. That was my first Reeb frame. Um, I did not build it. Uh, Chris Selfrian built it. Um, the, the original fabricator of Reeb and that bike is so rad and has gone through a bunch of different build combinations and like building it up and then, it kind of sitting because I didn't think the build was, or like, it just didn't really like vibe or something. And then, and then I'd like put a different, you know, set of handlebars on it and a different set of brakes. And I'm like back in love with the bike. And I've done uh, single speed worlds and bend uh, in Slovenia on it. I've done some other big uh, mountain bike races on it. And it's just, it's a bike that'll always, have and and love and it's like the 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 pro sauce iconic rasta fade with all of the the <laughs> as much rasta parts as i can i can do on it uh but right now it's just hung uh -huh. up with no seat posts <laughs> like seat seat posts That's got funny. robbed for a new bike and uh you just hard to get seat posts right now so yeah it's the the classic tale of robbing parts off of bikes yeah of your own bike don't don't like rob a cool other bike though parts. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so okay so back to your story though so you were uh moved out to colorado after you got an agronomy degree in iowa and then uh at some point you found yourself at reeb what was the what was the interim what happened in between uh so uh this is kind of where a lot of my story builds on um this kind of moment so um, it was a day before graduation at Iowa State University, and um, I had a really good buddy that I, I went to school with there um, at Iowa State that was big into uh, um, big into like welding, four by fours, motorcycles. Uh, he was a really good work woodworker. Uh, he was just kind of a smart dude. He was an engineer, actually a mechanical engineer, uh, but he was also from south uh southwest iowa i think or no southeast iowa and he went to i believe he went to nascar tech for engine building and he 
also worked on a dirt oval team doing like late model stock car, like engine building. So uh, we kind of joke that he's the smartest redneck you'll ever meet. Uh, but he taught me a lot of things <laughs> of, of you can you can really over-engineer something or you can kind of just get it done and fail or maybe succeed. And, you know, I think it was a John Saunders says fail fast, fail often. And then that teaches you to... I think he says fail fast, fail mistakes. cheap, right? Yeah, fail fast, fail cheap, yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah so he... He actually already had moved to Colorado and he accepted he was working um, as an engineer at a medical machine shop. And uh, the medical machine shop was in Boulder, Colorado. And it was kind of like we rode mountain bikes together a bunch. We did some endur- endurance races together. And so he's like, hey, man, I know you want to move out here. Um, you should apply for this maintenance job. And I was like, Ooh, maintenance job. Like, you know, you kind of think of maintenance guys as like the pool boy at the apartment complex or something. (laughs) And I think that's another thing that really gets depicted poorly in schooling. Um, You know, the maintenance guy is like the like extra blue collar position or, you know, it's like the step up from the janitor. Um, But I was like, Oh man, maintenance in a machine shop. That sounds awesome. I'm sure I can learn a lot of things about machining. And that's something that I wanted to learn. So I was like, sure. And set up an interview, I think that day. So like day before graduation. And this guy, Frank called me. Um, Frank and I talked for a bit. Um, It was, I don't know, pretty much kind of how like we're talking right now. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself how did you get where you are? Um, what kind of tools do you have in your toolbox? Which is a very deep question um, because tools in your toolbox isn't the like clapped out Phillips head screwdriver in your toolbox. It is what skills do you have that you can bring to the table? So that's always been like when I've hired people, that's kind of a question that I always ask because depending on the person, they could answer it in so many different ways. And I don't know, I probably like word puked about my life story. And um, he called me back 20 minutes later and offered me a job. Um, so I essentially packed up and moved straight to Colorado um, and took this job at this uh, medical machine shop. It's a, a contract manufacturing for all kinds of different surgical tools Um all kinds of crazy stuff that looks like you never want around your body. Uh, but I worked <laughs> there for five years and I learned an insane amount of stuff there. Um, first day of work, I showed up in like a button up shirt and like khakis. And Frank goes, man, I hope you bought some, or brought some uh, dirtier clothes because you got to get up on that man lift and uh, install this airline. And I was like, oh, okay, I actually did bring clothes because I figured you would say that. So here it goes. And and that kind of set the tone of working with Frank at this company. Um, It was kind of just like, let's get out there and do it. Um, Let's try to do everything we can um, 
on a machine before we call in a tech. Um, cause when you, when you buy nice CNC machines, uh, you know, from Germany, Switzerland, Japan, you know, you know, not a Haas, you have to fly in the tech from like Chicago or, you know, where like, you know, Schaumburg, Illinois is like the capital of all machine tools. So you yeah. kind of just have to learn. And I kind of got thrown into the pot and uh, hit the ground running and, and just tried to take in all the information I could and, and tried to work hard and, you know, problem solve every day. That's the coolest thing about being a CNC tech is it is never the same problem. You might have a reoccurring problem, but then you like learn from that reoccurring problem and then you get to figure out like the failure mode of why it's reoccurring and then the solution to fix it, you know? And with CNC machines, um, we had, uh, we had four or five, um, Willemans, Willemans, Willen McDonald or Macadell. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's Swedish. Um, but a Willeman machine, it's a five axis mill turn. And there are these cute little things that are great at machining small, tiny little parts, uh, like you're machining, um, hemostat babies. So like the, you know, think of like a hemostat as like a pair of scissors or like a pair of pliers, a surgical pair of pliers. And these things were like mm-hmm. the jaw, the, the entire jaw with the pivot was like an eighth of an inch long or like a quarter inch long, just tiny microscopic little things. And it had a 28,000 RPM spindle and they were just rad machines. And we had, uh, they were all fairly new. They were like 2000, 2010s or so. Um, but the serial number was like 100 and 104 and 114 and you you tried to work through these problems and then you would call the tech and they would help you work through these problems and then you're like well uh, you know they would say well we've never seen this before let's record this and for anybody in the future that has this problem now we know like what's going on and and how to fix it and we had one of the machines had 6 million tool changes on it. It was the most tool changes yeah. that they've ever had on a machine. So these yeah. are like dual umbrella um, cam actuated uh, tool, uh, tool carousels that are like that have the optics in them and all kinds of crazy stuff. So like when you have 6 million tool changes, like cam lobes wear out. And then your tool change time is like a fraction slower because the lobe is smaller and like all these weird, (laughs) these weird failure modes that you like spend eight hours on the phone with somebody. So, um, yeah, that job, I, I just learned everything about everything. I did plumbing. I did electrical work. You know, I was running like two gauge, uh, wire through conduit uh tying in machines uh we did a lot of millwright stuff so i i probably moved 100 cnc machines while i worked there um yeah preventative maintenance tasks uh building maintenance just kind of everything um yeah the one really cool thing about that 
what sounds so cool about that is that it's you get to do so many different things and i feel like you get to learn a lot of different stuff it's varied a lot of jobs aren't going to have that sort of dynamic you know every day is like a new challenge or a new opportunity to learn and that's something that i always appreciated about having my own shop whether it was a long time ago as like a hobby shop or more recently but like it's like yeah if there's plumbing stuff like i'm gonna try and do it myself if there's heating stuff if there's electricity if there's like i gotta build a wall for something if i need to move a machine i moved machines plenty not nearly as much as you but like i've moved them a handful of times uh just all this stuff it's like there's nobody else around to do it for you or to ask for help and that's all the difference in the world just like you being the only one who can solve your own problems or it's an expensive phone call to somebody else just puts you in a position where you're going to learn uh, I'm kind of jealous that you had a job like that because I never, I never had a very good job in my life, and so I just kind of had to make my own. And I'm happy with where I'm at, but that sounds like a lovely time. Yeah, and you know, uh, it's it's almost something that like that job meant so much to me. It, it had its ups and downs. That you know, I was on call um, technically. Um, you know, it was stressful. Uh, if a machine was down, there's a lot of dollars being lost per day. Um, yep. and it's a giant shop. We, it was a 20,000 square foot shop and we were for most of the time, it was a two person maintenance team. Uh, then we got one extra person and then Frank, the guy that ran the whole show kind of passed everything down to me. And then I took over and I was, then I was by myself for a bit, but I was pretty comfortable with the whole shop. So, you know, I was in the weeds all the time, but um, it's really hard to find good maintenance people. Um, I know they're out there, but every situation is very different. Every machine shop you walk into has a completely different operating structure in regards to maintenance. You know, there's the, you know, you know, receiving material, machining material, inspecting material, and then shipping material. But maintenance is done very differently depending on who owns the company. Um, there's some people that just only use their local dealers to, you know, wrench on the machines, and then they're paying a lot of money. Um, you know, they're paying $150 an hour for a tech instead of, you know, $30 an hour you know, that's there knows the machine knows the operator that runs the machine knows like, okay, yeah, maybe the second shift guy has more problems because he doesn't, you know, rub the machine correctly, you know, in the, in the right direction or, <laughs> or, yeah, there's, there's so much learning and the, like, I almost want to like get up on a soapbox and like tell the world how good maintenance technicians are or like why more people should <laughs> be a maintenance guy at some yeah. port, some portion of their life, because it's going to teach them, you know, it might redirect them into a different position or like they realize they, cause you get to see the whole company. You get to talk with the owner, you get to talk with purchasing, you get to talk with engineering, and then you get to talk with all the operators. And there's not really that same communication for every employee in the shop. Um, you know, operators, yeah. you know, talk to their shop floor manager and, you know, it, there's, you kind of see the whole realm. Um, but so this Frank guy, he was a, uh, I don't know, he's got a lot of stories, um, but he was a 
um, aircraft mechanic and he was a very high end aircraft mechanic. Um, he was a military contractor, um, and he was doing, uh, like he was in fatigues, uh, in helicopters and in larger, much larger planes being a, I believe flight mechanic. So he has been overseas and he's done a lot of stuff in very critical, critical situations. Um, so he, he had like the most badass 5S snap on box that you could, you would ever see. It's like the one that's like eight feet long, but it's, it's low. So it's like a workbench height, but it has like, Mm -hmm. you know, like 40 drawers and every single one of those drawers was, uh, 5S foamed, you know, every tool has its place. Oh, that's awesome. And, and then every tool was uh, serialized because when you're working on aircraft, uh, you have to yeah. account for all of your tools at the end of your day. So yeah. he just like, he was a kind of down and dirty, get the job done kind of guy, but he had this way of uh, being very organized and very methodical about things. And, you know, when you walk up to a problem, you know, take a step back from it first and look at all of the things going on. Like, you know, is the room temperature way different or is there a new operator on the machine or, you know, was there just an oil change or, you know, the, the problems that you wouldn't immediately think of, of like, Oh, this tool crashed or the bar feeder isn't working or the spindles overheating. Like, you know, like you got to start, broad before you just like dive into like the actual problem um Mm -hmm. so yeah he he taught me so much um he's a he's an awesome guy and um i think he kind of molded me into this maintenance guy that i never thought i would be and so the funny thing is my dad uh was uh his position at john deere was um facilities um supervisor of facilities and facilities engineering maintenance engineering manufacturing no not manufacturing engineering but he was the guy that planned out the building for machine moves and you know made sure the concrete was strong enough to um hold a, a new mazak that weighs you know 60,000 pounds and you know make sure that when they installed a new paint system that everything works in the facility and, you know, all of the electrical contractors and HVAC contractors and, and mechanical contractors are all, you know, in line to make sure that everything works. So growing up, I just didn't see, I guess we, I didn't see my dad as being kind of like the facilities maintenance engineer. I saw him as just an engineer that works in an office and maybe I just didn't um, appreciate it enough because I didn't know exactly what all he did. And when I was a kid, we did plenty of tours, but it was like you hop in a John Deere Gator in the factory and it takes you like two hours to drive around the factory. (laughs) So it's just like sensory overload. Like, I don't know what to look at. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that, um, 
that job, uh, I bounced around to a lot of different roles. I did, um, I actually kind of moved into the office for a little bit and I was a uh, continuous improvement guy. So we did a lot of Kaizen events, which is, you know, adopting the, the Japanese um, uh, lean manufacturing principles. Uh, so Kaizen event is uh, taking a manufacturing cell and um, taking all the inputs and outputs of that cell and calculating, uh, you know, work in process and tack time of the employee machining apart, like how long does it take um, or how many employees does it take to manufacture one part per hour or, you know, whatever number you want to come up with. But my job with that was to make stuff happen. Like we need to move this table and it has to have this 5S stuff on it. And we need tool boards that um, only hold the tool. So I would go into the tool room and manually machine HDPE sheets with like tool shapes in them. So, you know, if there's a pair of pliers, I would like manually machine a plier shape into this plastic sheet. So, you know, that's where the operator had to put their pliers. Or, you know, if we were moving machines, that would be the, the millwright to move the machine because all this happens during one week. It's kind of hectic. <laughs> like it's, it's like, oh, we need to move four machines in a week and have them running by the end of the week so we can prove out that this is a better workflow. And so it was like <laughs> coming up with new processes. Like I made a, um, I made a passivation system from scratch, like pretty much in a week, like taking ultrasonic tanks, uh, rigging them with flow control, um, like a sump tank to uh, dispose of any uh, uh, any dirty water that was in the tank that goes over like a waterfall and then it filters. And um, but passivation is uh, taking the oxides out of stainless, so very important in medical um, in medical yeah. parts. Um, and it was just like, yeah, you got to come up with this thing. And I got to work with engineers to figure out like the PLC program. And then I would wire it and build it. And sometimes it was like welding up frames and um, installing pumps and plumbing and electrical. And it was just like, I just kind of did everything. It was a very cool uh, role at such a big company. Um, so in positions like that, you can kind of mold what you do also. Don't just go into work every day um, looking to do the tasks at hand go into work every day trying to make the place better or like improve a process or you know yeah some machine shops might not be super into that they're like oh no we have this like dialed process that's we've done it the same way for five years but um even at those shops you can be like well you know, maybe we mop the floor better at night or, you know, like maybe the operator can wipe down their machine at the end of the day. So uh, the shop looks nicer the next day and it continues to look nice yeah. rather than just like running the machine into the ground. That's what a lot of people do when they buy new CNC machines. They kind of just run them into the ground. Um, not yeah. everybody, but 
you know, new business owners that buy like 30 Haas machines or something, they're going to be like, oh, these things are going to run lights out forever. And then they don't factor in a maintenance plan or any plan. Um, so yeah, I, that kind of, I guess all of that led into, you know, working in the tool room, getting to do a bunch of stuff with the Kaizen events, um, all the, um, I, I just call them old timers, you know, all the old timer machinists that worked in the tool room kind of picked up on, I like to ask questions. Um, I wanted to figure out how to run uh, the mills and the lathes, the manual mills and lathes. And I would have these like crazy ideas to like mill this part. And I'm like, what end mill do I use? Or how, I was like, how, I want to machine these to certain dimensions, but I don't know how to like make a plan of action for hitting these like, you know, X, Y numbers on the digital readout with a manual mill. And so like one of my first big projects, it was this tool board that would hold like 10 tools and it was all milled pockets to fit each tool. And I went through and figured out X, Y coordinates for every corner or every move or like every change in direction. And it was essentially like writing out G code. Um, it was like, wow. well, I need, need to move from negative eight inches in X to negative nine inches in X. And then I need to move negative five inches in Y to make a corner. And uh, I just kept doing that. And like kept, I would like stay after work and like be there until like eight o'clock at night because there was the second shift. So all day I got to talk with the first shift tool room guys. And all these guys were like old time tool makers. So they worked at like water pick, IBM, uh, Bolero space, uh, you know, like all the big shops in Colorado that made super cool stuff. Like one guy, um, Eddie worked at Rocky flats where they made nuclear triggers. So like you get exposed to so many different people where, you know, you're working in this one shop that makes medical tools, but each employee at that shop probably has worked at a different shop making other parts. So they have more experience and you just talk to them about it and you learn things and, and then you like build yeah. this trust with those guys and then they want to teach you things. So yeah, it was all about just like listening and asking questions that would like prompt, you know, learning. So the, also the, the other thing I said, generally I'm jealous that it sounded like that was uh, in a lot of ways, a really good job, but I had this one CNC machine shop job in my life that I held for nine months. And then I finally just quit, but it couldn't have been more opposite. It was like, it was so, so, so different than what you're describing. And it just concretes my idea that I probably should have left that shop after two weeks. But you know, like, I think what your story is, uh, one of the impressions it's making on me is that there are really good opportunities and really interesting things that you can do that you can grow from. And there are other ones that uh, you won't so much. And so you need to like, you need to speak up for yourself, find the right ones, you know, have the courage to leave the job that's not getting you anywhere and find something that actually is developmental and interesting and challenging. Yeah. And, you know, it all depends on where you land. Uh, like I was very fortunate 
that I landed at a a very nice machine shop that was owned it was privately owned and the owner rode mountain bikes and he was a rad you know Colorado guy and he wanted to um, build this machine shop so a uh, little known fact the owner of that company invented the ski ticket wicket. So the little wire thing that you put through your zipper and then put a, um, a ski, ski ticket pat or a ski pass, like you stick it over it. Yeah. Um, he, maybe he didn't invent the actual product, but he was the, um, main manufacturer. His, his, uh, previous, uh, company ownership was, uh, a wire bending company. Um, and that kind yeah. of morphed into medical stuff. But so he had this like 1920s, I forget what it's called. It's called the slide something, um, slide, slide board. Anyway, it was like a belt driven, like flat leather belt driven, um, wire bending machine. That was like the size of a, a pallet or so. And it could pop out a ski ticket wicket like every second. And he made like probably billions of them because, you know, that would only take like a couple of weeks of that thing running if it's popping out every second. But yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like kind of crazy Colorado, you know, esque story of how a small wire bending shop turned into a medical shop. But this place was nice. Like I walked in and it was the cleanest machine shop I've ever seen in my life. Like white walls, all the machines were probably about 2008 or newer. Um, most like 2000, I don't know, 12 and newer. And it was just like really nice. And like the floors weren't slippery and they were epoxy coated and there was good organization and everybody liked being there and people hung out after work and we, you know, hung out on the weekends and, um, it was just, it was kind of like a shop. And I, I know that all shops aren't like that. I've been in a lot of other machine shops that they're like, Oh, well we can't get employees to stay here. And it's like, well, look around. Like, <laughs> I don't really <laughs> want to be here. <laughs> like yeah. improve, improve some things and you'll get higher quality employees. Um, but that shop also had yeah. like very long standing, um, contracts with um, Medtronic and Covidian for like, you know, year, like several year long contracts to manufacture, you know, a hundred thousand parts. So they were pretty well off of like, it wasn't a job shop at all. Like every machine, like we had several different cells, we had a, a lot of Swiss slaves. Um, they had a lot of the brother, Speedio, not Speedio, but the um, the machine right before the Speedio. I forget the model number, but had like eight of those with um, trunnions on them. So like four axis, fourth axis trunnions, and then five axis uh, jaws, like uh, pneumatically operated jaws, and um, a lot of cool stuff. But like every part made the same part every day. Like there was like there was no like job changeover like every month to like bring in a new customer. It was like the whole shop was dedicated yeah. to making like this, this isn't a correct number, but like 20 product lines, you know? So yeah, 
it wasn't like a job shop where it's like, oh man, if we don't get a new contract, we're going to lose the shop. You know, mm-hmm. it's so yeah, they definitely had some money invested in the, in the customers were also very invested into the company. Like probably a quarter of the machines in that building were actually owned by the customer. Um, they like yeah. bought the machine for our shop just to make those parts. So yeah, you're definitely, so, everybody's going to walk into a different shop and have a very different experience, but Hey, maybe you get lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, I think, you know, when you're young and you're trying to figure out what the hell you're doing with your life, I think it's good to just try stuff and then be ready to be ready to move on to the next thing if it's not right, but like earnestly try it, you know, don't stay anywhere way too long, but don't be afraid to, uh, you know, yeah, try that stuff. Just like walk in someplace, Yeah, like, like introduce yourself, see if they're hiring or like talk to people, you know, or like it's, it's not, I feel like that stuff's not that out of reach. Yeah. And, you know, especially if you have like a friend that works at a company, like that's, that was my in, like I had a friend that already worked there and that he could vouch for me that I knew what I was doing, but you know, I had zero, um, like qualifications to work as a maintenance tech at a CNC machine shop. I mean, my qualifications were, I taught myself how to weld. I've worked in a garage. I work on cars. Like that, that was like my qualifications on paper. So, you know, so don't, don't think that, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, when, when did you meet the Reeb crew and the owner of Reeb and and all that? So um, I, well, I met him kind of early and then nothing came about from it. And then I met him later. So early on the shipping guy at this medical machine shop was a airbrush artist like he airbrushed um, like helmets and, and like all kinds of different stuff, but he was airbrushing some mountain bike helmets for, um, for Oscar blues, which is the um, Oscar blues brewing is kind of how Reeb happened. We'll go into this later, I'm sure. But so Oscar blues uh, kind of helped start Reeb. Um, they sponsored some mountain bikers and they were having some custom helmets airbrushed. And this guy that worked in the shipping department um, knew that I rode bikes and knew that I was a welder. And he's like, hey, there's this company uh, just north of here um, in Longmont. That's like a, a 15 minute north of that job. And he's like, they're looking for a welder. And I was like, oh, man, like, I'm a welder, but I've never welded a bicycle frame. And... He's like, oh, well, you should reach out to him. And I was like, ah, like, ah, like, I don't want to go walk into a one-man show bike company or, like, fabrication side. It was a one-man show. Um, and be like, yeah, I can weld. I've never welded a bicycle frame. And I know that you just want me to weld bicycle frames. You know, it was kind of like I wasn't good enough. So I never reached out to them, but I always thought of them um, the kind of in the back of my head. And this is kind of in the same time that Standard Bike Company was building me my last uh, 29-inch uh, hardtail mountain bike. And 
we were going through tubing selection. Like they only use, uh, they only used uh, true temper. Um, and they're, they're like, you know, the top of the line true temper was OX platinum. And I was flipping through the catalog, trying to spec some tubing for this bike. And I noticed the down tube, they only had one, uh, 44 millimeter down tube, like this, you know, stiffest, I was looking for like the stiffest, most hardcore frame. And they had one down tube listed for 44 millimeter. And the part number was Reeb down tube one. And I was like, huh, that Reeb company must be pretty big. They got tempered to make a tube just for them. And so yeah. that bike that I had standard build used a Reeb spec tube on that bike. So it was kind of cool. <laughs> like a lot of, I mean, pretty much every tubing company now has something similar to that. They, they make up their own part numbers, but most tubing was requested by a customer. And that's why the company makes it like they didn't just go out and be like, Oh, we're going to make, 50 top tubes in, you know, uh, cascade effect, butt lengths. Um, it's like pretty purpose, like pretty built. Like, same thing with chain stays. Like a lot of bent chain stays are because somebody asked that company to bend it that certain way. And then they're like, well, we might as well just make like 10,000 of them. Somebody's going to buy them. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I probably went another two years at the medical machine shop and I got to the point where I was understaffed, um, not really making enough money for what I was doing. I was making good money, but it just, I was being overutilized. Um, and I was starting to race mountain bikes more. I was taking Fridays and Mondays off so I could like rush out to a race so I could, um, you know, pre-ride the course because pros, I race pro. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't say I am professional, but I race in the pro category and those like real professionals were showing up on Wednesday and getting to pre-ride the course Wednesday, Thursday, and then they would take a rest day on Friday to race Saturday, Sunday, I would show up at like wow. midnight on a Thursday, uh, try to ride the course as much as I could Friday to learn it and then race Saturday and Sunday and do pretty well. Like I was always Colorado's tough. Like we have pretty much the fast people out here. Um, so I was getting like top 10, top 20 at big races doing pretty well, like doing like, I was, I would say I'm one of the better grassroots people that welds their own bike and works a full-time job. I guess I'm probably the only person that <laughs> is doing that in the current times. But uh, yeah, I just kind of realized that I was almost at five years at that job. And that was kind of my goal is to like get five years. Cause like what you said earlier, like we're young you know, you get out there and experience something, but don't just like get a job at 18 and then work there until you're 60 and retire because, yeah, you know, maybe you could have gone down a different path or something. So I was about to hit this five year mark and Reeb just released the squeeb, which is uh, kind of an acronym for squishy Reeb. 
and it was the first time that Reeb made a full suspension bike out of aluminum, like big, big difference or like big change for Reeb. Reeb started as hardtail single speeds and that was it. Like there was two sizes and it was just a hardtail single speed mountain bike. So I was like, man, that bike actually looks pretty darn good. And I rode, when I first started mountain biking, I got, uh, my brother actually helped me get a transition covert mountain bike. So that was uh, originally a 26 inch, like 150 travel full suspension bike. And I think I bought it on pink bike, which is funny looking back at it now. Like, I think it came from Bellingham or something, but I was just like, Oh, it came from the, the West coast. Like they don't have great trails there. It's going to be fine. And I get it. And it's just like, it was a great bike. It like the build was awesome, but it was like clapped out. It was ridden. Like it was, it was used and abused. Uh, So I rode that for a little bit. And then I got a new transition covert and it was the 29 inch, uh, 29 inch wheels, 140 travel, and it was aluminum. And I thought it was pretty, pretty stinking cool. Like I, I loved that bike. It was also right when XX1 came out. So I was like one of the first people in our like friend group that had that like giant sprocket that like, you know, the, the new 11 speed yeah. Like this like dinner plate sprocket. And so I, I kind of fell in love with that bike and it was a single pivot design. Um, but I rode that for a bit and then they stopped making it. They, they got rid of their longer travel 29 inch wheeled bike. So, um, I started ride. I started racing more, um, I wanted to get one of these newfangled carbon mountain bikes and there was a local rep in town that, um, I'm part of this, uh, kind of fake real joke of a mountain bike team called team rude boy. And it really <laughs> just all started as a bunch of friends that just rode their bikes together every weekend. And one day we we're like, Hey, we should get matching shirts. And we went to champion systems, the like apparel company with a, like an idea. And then we came, they came back with this ridiculous Rasta design. And I think we've ordered Uh like $30,000 worth of gear from them at this point. Just like, Holy cow. Kind of just like everybody wants a rude boy tank top that's on the team. Like, it's just kind of the, you know, they're like 20 bucks. So you buy like three of them. (laughs) Um, but I started racing more with them, like getting a little bit more serious. The Colorado enduro scene was, was going off at this point. And I rode, I got on like an ambassador program of this carbon bike manufacturer that I won't say the name, but they're in California and they, I mean, their bikes are made overseas. They used to have bikes made in the U S but, um, it was pretty cool. It was a, um, not a single pivot though. And I learned that the difference between a single pivot bike and like a, a virtual pivot point bike are very different. Um, like depending on how you like to ride the bike, uh, single pivots, let's be general here. Single pivots are poppy and playful and VPP bikes are planted and fast. 
Um, and I'm not really a planted and fast kind of guy. I'm kind of like the guy that like seeks out the rock on the side of the trail to drink off of it and then like manual down the rest of the trail. So, um, <laughs> but I had a good deal on bikes. Um, I wasn't in the bike industry yet. So I was you know, trying to figure out any way to get a better deal on, on a mountain bike. And I rode that bike for like two years and it was awesome. Um, I learned a lot of things about uh, intended use of a bike. Um, these bikes were intended to be used for mountain biking, but evidently not the type of mountain biking that I was doing because I break them all the time. <laughs> and it wasn't like I was breaking the carbon frames. I would break, I would break carbon, but from like crashing into rocks and like going over the handlebars and the seat stay landing on a rock and it would break. Sure. That's going to happen on any carbon bike, but I was just breaking pivot bolts like crazy. They had these stupid single shear aluminum pivot bolts that would strip and shear all the time. And it was driving me insane. And this is before I, like I could make parts, um, but I didn't know how to like single point thread and I didn't know how to broach um, like hex broach anything. So I couldn't just make a bolt and it was, you know, like 18 millimeter or maybe like 16 millimeter diameter with like a thread pitch of one. It's not like just a, you can't just like go on McMaster car and, and get a custom bolt to put through your mountain bike frame. So it stops breaking. So I raced an entire season and didn't finish a single race without a serious mechanical, um, like breaking a, a pivot bolt in a race and like finishing the race with one seat stay connected to the bike. And then it's like, Oh, well the, (laughs) the VPP link is bent because I was side loading the crap out of the back end of the bike the whole time. And Uh I just learned a lot of things from that. And, uh, yeah, it just, it became so frustrating to call up that company and be like, Hey, um, it wasn't so ambassadorships. A lot of people think ambassadorships are like, like being factory pro, like you get free bikes, brah, but no, it's just like you get a 30% discount and you're just a customer. Like you're not actually on a team. Like they don't really care about you. They're just giving you like 20% over what they paid. So they're still making a profit, but you know, you're promising that you're going to like post photos on social media and like really talk up their company and all this. But, um, as a racer, you want to like have support. And like, if you break a bike in a race, you want to like call them up and be like, Hey, can I get a bike by like, uh, like middle of the week so I can go race again? And they're like, eh, uh, that'll be a crash replacement because you crashed or we'll send you some new pivot bolts or like, you know, jumping through a lot of hoops and it just wasn't, wasn't what I was after. I was like, there's gotta be a way to make bikes better. And, yeah. uh, so the squeeb was out and about and I was riding a carbon bike and I saw the squeeb and I was like, Oh man, that thing looks cool. Like, I mean, it kind of looked like a transition or like the same, same style. And, I followed this guy, Chris, um, 
the original fabricator at Reeb. He went by Fab Reeb Cater. So like fabricator, but Fab Reeb Cater. So like I followed <laughs> him. He is an amazing welder and he does some super cool stuff. And I sent him a message on Instagram and I said, Hey, do you guys have an extra large that I could ride? Like this bike looks awesome. I'm, I'm stoked that you guys are building it here. And, you know, it's an aluminum bike that's built in Colorado. Like that's, that, that wasn't, that wasn't popular at that point. Um, so he's like, no, we don't have an extra large, but I'll just weld you one up tomorrow and I'll have it to you by the end of the week. And I was like, what? Like, you can't do that. <laughs> and sure, sure. He welded up an extra large squeeze the next day and they powder coated it and had it built um, by the end of the week. And I took that thing out and had, I think I took it out to this like uh, kind of like social trail in Colorado that's super steep. It used to be like old DH runs back in the day, but now it kind of, uh, didn't really tame tame down but it just became more of like a super fun trail bike area i guess because trail bikes are just like downhill bikes used to be <laughs> um but i took it out and just i did one run and the bike ripped it was insane like if you jump on a bike and you can manual it and it feels good on the trail in the first hundred feet buy that bike like it's, it's like the definitive way to, well, like if you're into that kind of thing, like doing manuals and stuff like that, but like not all bikes feel like that. Some bikes you just feel super foreign on. And, uh, so I, I took that and I was like, I need this bike. And I think I did like one more run and like broke the rear rims on a brand new bike. And I just felt <laughs> so bad and like, but it had, so Reed made makes made plus size bikes. So like 650 B plus. Um, I think it's kind of a like not dying fad, but not as many people are into it as they were a couple years ago. But the rims that they put on the bike were like the uh, like 35 millimeter wide plus bike rims. So they weren't really like rated for what I was doing. Um, so you know, I felt bad, but I was like, Oh, that, those aren't the right wheels for that bike. So I chatted with them and I was like, Hey, um, I really want one of these bikes, but I am, I'm a real broke guy. Like I don't really have money for, uh, for bikes. Um, so, um, at that medical machine shop, I worked four tens. So four 10 hour days, 40 hours a week. And so I had Fridays off and, I was like, Hey, um, you guys obviously need some help in your shop and I would like to learn CNC machining and, you know, bicycle frame welding. Um, could I come in on Fridays and just trade hours for a frame? And I was like, you set the pay scale. Um, I will work 500 hours in your shop if I, if I need to, to pay off a frame. But I was like, I want to come in and learn this process but i also want to help you guys and i want to get a bike out of it at the end of the day um so we did that and within the first couple of weeks of me being there um we all like reeb and i realized that 
this would be a really good opportunity. Um, the Squeeb was a super awesome bike, but it needed um, it needed a rider to progress the bike, but it also needed somebody that could progress the bike, but like improve uh, manufacturability and efficiency of, of making a, uh, you know, CNC machined uh, or like CNC machine parts for an aluminum mountain bike frame all in house with two people. Like there's a lot of stuff to figure out. This, this isn't just like call China and order dropouts or for a steel hard steel yeah. frame, call Paragon machine works and order dropouts and head tube. This is like, we have to figure out how to do all of this in house and make it marketable to the Colorado or I mean, worldwide, we ship bikes everywhere, but we got to make it marketable. So I took that bike and raced it and we've just been growing ever since it, it gets rolling changes based on, um, rider feedback and, you know, feedback from me and, and it just keeps evolving into this amazing bike. So yeah, a couple of weeks there, it was like, okay, I should work here. And they were like, Hey, we're <laughs> going to need to figure out how to hire, hire you. And I took a pretty darn big pay cut from the uh, med device machine shop to work at Reed, but it simplified my life in a lot of ways of like, when I started, I was like, I'm going to work four tens because I travel on Fridays to go to races and you know, otherwise I'd just take it off anyway. And I kind of said like, it's gotta be okay for me to leave any time to go ride bikes. And they were like, hell yeah. And I did a <laughs> like three month taper out of the med device shop into Reeb. So I could hire people to replace me and train them and make sure everything was running smoothly. And then so I was working pretty much 30 hours a week at both jobs as I like tapered into Reeb. And, um, I still go back to that med device machine shop all the time to do contract maintenance work. Like once you, once you build a bridge that big, they just, you know, keep needing you. So it's a good position to be in if, uh, if, uh, you know, company keeps calling you back and paying you more money for, like some help after hours. Yeah. Yeah. Once you know how everything works and they know that you're capable and you're good at it, then, you know, to get you back when they really need you, they'd pay plenty good for that. It's a lot easier probably than their other options. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. so cool to hear so, uh, how you, how um, you found your path into Reeb to get, started doing that so what year was that that you started officially with reeb what was that sorry you broke up a little bit what year were you officially getting started working at reeb full-time uh i started at reeb in 2017 uh but i went full-time a couple months after that so uh, i think i went full-time in april or may um, so it's been almost yeah. four years, um, yeah, roughly four years, three and a half, four years. Um, and it's been 
been kind of a wild ride for sure. Yeah, I see what you're doing now. You seem very skilled with the CNC machining and with the welding and just, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff you're saying about that maintenance job, you know, it seems like you just have the ability to manage a lot of different things, multifaceted kinds of things, and just see that it gets done and that it gets done well. Uh, when you started there, was you, were you like, I mean, how, how long of a road was it to getting to where you've, you've gotten with like welding the bikes? Was that because you had done welding before? Was it, did it take very long for you to figure that out? Uh, yeah. So when I started on at Reeb, um, I started on with, uh, since I was just starting on Fridays, um, I just ran the CNC machine and I was, you know, operator level and at the medical machine shop, I, when I was in the lean manufacturing program, I, uh, did a couple, um, uh, like PQ, PQ runs, like pre pre-qualification runs on machines. So like I would stand in as an operator for like three weeks to run a part. So like I knew how to, I knew how to run a CNC machine. I knew how to be an operator. So when I came on at Reeb, um, they would just have parts set up, like, uh, you know, parts set up in the mill with a program ready. And I would just, you know, turn and burn parts, uh, you know, make sure bearing boards were round and on size and uh, just keep the machine fed. Um, while the machine was running, um, like we had some, uh, we had some complicated parts that had like hour and a half run times. So I would go around the shop and kind of just like try to make the shop better. Um, we had like a mill and a lathe that were bought, you know, at an auction or something. Our Fidal was, um, I think actually traded like some bike frames for it. Like this is all before my time. So it's kind of hearsay, but I'm pretty sure the deal was like, we built a couple bike frames for the owner of a used tool dealer in in the area and that's how we got the machine um but it was like every machine was missing a knob or like a lever or something mm -hmm. and i went through and just machined like new knobs for the lathe and like uh just kind of like replaced some missing parts and just wanted to like improve the function of the machine because I was going to like use it a bunch and I didn't want to like grab onto a, uh, um, you know, a tool holder on the lathe and like grab onto like a threaded portion of a shaft, you know, it's just not, it's not yeah. nice. It's not like, you know, nice to use every day. So I think as I kind of did that, Chris um, realized that I was, you know, good at things and could figure out projects. So, um, I started like turning all of the pivot hardware for the squeeb. So that bike is like, I mean, we, we buy tubes, uh, like the top tube and down tube seat stays and chain stays from a catalog because they're formed tubing, but we machine everything else in house. Like the pivot hardware was machined in house. Um, all the CNC machining was done in house, the rockers, like all of that. So, um, we would, we had this pretty good, uh, pivot design and we would 
take 70, 75 and, and turn these parts and have them anodized. So it was learning about, um, anode buildup, uh, you know, having to machine the part like three tenths or five tenths undersized. So when the ano shop messes up and they bake the parts or etch the parts for way too long, you know, you have a little bit of, little bit of wiggle room to make sure that bearing or the pivot still fits through a, a bearing. That was like, that was a huge learning experience. That was like supply chain nightmare kind of thing where, um, yeah, you know, you talk to the, you talk to the anno shop and they're like, well, yeah, we can, we can hit those numbers and then they can't. And you got a bunch of <laughs> pivots that won't fit through the bearing. And it's like, okay, well, we can, we actually center this ground a bunch one time. Um, we had a, uh, this is kind of down the road, but uh, we had a local manufacturer turn a bunch of these parts for us and then anodize them. And they were all five tenths oversized. So we actually had them centerless ground. Um, we ground the anno five tenths down and it was like still black. Like, you know, it still looked great, but it was like the best suspension hardware you could ask for. But we also like added another $10 per bolt so yeah it wasn't uh <laughs> it wasn't economical but when you've got 60 bolts 60 pivots sitting in a box that are done that don't fit you kind of gotta make it happen so yeah um i didn't really do you need to use welding go ahead do you need to use like a diamond grinding wheel to cut through anodized? Because anodized would be kind of too hard to cut with an aluminum oxide grinding wheel, right? You know, I'm not exactly sure. Um, it was all outsourced. Like the the manufacturer that yeah. actually turned those pivots for us did it because, you know, we got them and we're like, well, the print says, you know, 669,000. <laughs> And these are 670,000 and five tenths. And, you know, it was like, yeah. we didn't dimension, we didn't have tolerances on the print. So it was like our mistake, but also, you know, it's intended use was to fit into a bearing and it didn't fit into a bearing. Yeah. So they helped us out. They made it happen. But yeah, I'm guessing it would be a diamond wheel um, and coolant. Um, but yeah, they, they yeah. were so nice. They had like the, the best finish ever on them. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's like, it's already hard and the, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like hardening steel and then grinding it sort of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was just two of us at the shop. I was, um, not doing any programming or design work. I was just running the CNC machine and doing, assembly and you know uh mitering tubes uh and just like prep work and then chris would weld the frames and he did the squeeb and tie and so like everything that we made and um it, i mean it got to the point where you know you want to weld your own bike so it's like okay i'll start uh taking some crap tubing practicing um, I was a proficient TIG welder, but never welded anything that thin. So it didn't take me too long to pick up on it, but I still kind of had that like, well, I'm not going to weld a customer bike, you know, for the first one. So 
Um, that's kind of when I downloaded Fusion 360 and started to learn how to draw frames in Fusion 360. And I think I, I did pretty much two bikes at once. I started on a clunker frame that like a 29 inch clunker bike, but kind of had like all the bells and whistles and it was super slack and like, you know, all, all the cool keywords of current mountain bike trend, but you know, looked like a clunker. And then a 29 inch, uh, dirt jumper, uh, kind of the same way I started with standard bike company. I needed a bigger bike and 26 inch dirt jumpers just always felt small to me. So I was like, well, I really like standard. So why not just make a 29 inch dirt jumper? Um, so I, uh, drew them up with help from Chris and I mitered them all up and like, when you're building your own bike, when you're learning to build your own bike, but you're doing production bikes every day, building your own bike takes a really long time. Like, I think I had a front triangle tacked for like six months before I like added a rear end to it. So, um, in that time, uh, Chris started having me tack frames. So, um, I would load frames into the fixture and tack them and then he would finish weld them. So it was, kind of just you know small shop that's how you make stuff happen you you help wherever you can and you learn new um new things and and then you just run with it um so i welded those bikes up still have uh still have the clunker all together i broke the dirt jumper unfortunately um in my very cheap uh mentality of building my first frame like i didn't want to spend a bunch of money on a bunch of fancy parts because it was going to be my first one and i knew like the welds were going to look bad or it wasn't going to be straight or something but i used a straight gauge head tube with no reinforcing rings and i uh rode that bike pretty hard like i i can case 360s over some pretty big jumps and I cased uh, some big jumps one too many times and uh, found a crack um, in the in the head tube. The head tube's just too thin uh, for what I was doing to it. So, you know, what's experience. the wall? What was the wall thickness on that? I don't know. It was a Nova Nova head tube stock. So it was forty four millimeter. Um, it was a forty four millimeter yeah. tube uh or for a 44 millimeter headset uh but yeah it was it was just too thin for like casing big jumps all the time like reinforcing rings i think would have <laughs> yeah. helped a ton um but yeah it was just like quick and dirty and then the the problem was the the bike came out awesome like i was so bummed when it broke because it was like it turned out so good and i was really proud of it but it was like oh i, I cut a corner yeah. And that corner bit me in the butt and I didn't, it didn't fail. Like I still rode the bike. Um, but looking up into the head tube, like, um, like inside of the head tube, I could see a crack forming. So I was like, well, this is going to end in a bad way. So I guess I'm just going to make a new one (laughs) and maybe use the Paragon head tube this time. And I will improve on my welding and, you know, paint job. Yeah. 
You know, what's interesting about that is that I am someone who I feel like I tend to baby a lot of my stuff. Not that I like do perfect maintenance on everything that I own, but like when it comes to bicycles and a lot of things, I feel like I'm gentle with things. And so the idea of like a Paragon head tube just feels like pretty beefy and like pretty much overkill for the way that most people build bikes with them, especially like, you know, you see like a road bike with a carbon fork and like, you know, 28 millimeter slicks or something like you probably don't need the paragon beef factor to your head tube but what you're talking about yeah. where you're doing 360 jumps on a clunker with no suspension and you know how to ride the shit out of it and you do on a regular basis that's a really good argument for like the the mark norstad just overbuild the hell out of it sort of mentality yeah, and the the three sixty jump weren't on the clunker. These are the two separate bikes. But okay. the cool thing about the clunker was I built a fork for it because I had this um, I had this idea of flat head angle and a lot of rake will make a pretty rad uh, short axle to crown like clunker situation. And I'd never built a fork before and Chris at Reed had never built a fork or maybe he had built some forks, but we didn't have a fork jig or anything like that. And so I bought one of Paragon's really nice tapered, um, you know, inch and an eighth, inch and a half machine to steer tubes. And I bought some like real beefy fork legs, like Unicrown fork legs. And I called up uh, Bernsey at Oddity and they're just they're just north of us and we're good friends and um I was like, "Hey, can I borrow your fork jig?" And he was like, "Well, I build a lot of forks, so you can't borrow it, but why don't you miter all your tubes and just come up and build it in my shop?" And I was like, "Oh, that sounds great. I have no idea how to miter a fork. Like that sounds hard, you know, making sure both fork legs are the correct length." You know, because if you yeah, a, if a you miter Unicron one, like, style, yeah, um, you know, if you miter yeah. one uh, dropout end twenty thousandths shorter, and then you weld it, it's going to, you know, shrink twenty thousandths shorter, no matter what you do in your jig. So I was a little nervous, but um, went up to Bernsey's shop and and welded this fork and. It is an awesome, extremely rigid fork for my clunker. Um, that clunker is an awesome mountain bike, but in Colorado, it is a real handful on Rocky Trail being full rigid. And it's, it's not like steel is real. It like flexes and moves and is like, you know, very um conforming to the trail this is like the most rigid fork that you could ever ask for <laughs> like there's no <laughs> compliance in this thing so um that bike is awesome but it it's definitely like it feels like a race bike but the fork really slows it down and it's it's really short axle to crown so i can't just put a suspension fork on it um otherwise the head angle yeah. would be like 62 degrees and like the bottom bracket height would be really funky and um but yeah. another one of those awesome learning experiences like you got to figure out what tubing does before you're just gonna like do it on a customer bike um yeah so yeah kind of experimenting with my own stuff and then 
um, learning um, how Chris built bikes and how we, uh, we, I guess we never really talked about Reeb. We can talk about that next, but um, we do a bunch of production yeah. bikes and it's like, how do you select butt locations for production bikes? And um, what's the weight limit for the frame or like, what's the ideal weight of a rider for this bike? And if they're like 80 pounds, we're going to probably want to do a custom frame. And if they're 300 pounds, we're probably going to want to do a custom frame, but everybody in between fits this production bike. Perfect. Um, so yeah. It's yeah, the production versus full custom um is always a um juggling match at Reed. Uh we do tons of both. Um so it's it's fun to go back and forth and like, yeah, we do a good amount of production bikes, but then we get to do some really awesome custom ones. So it keeps it super exciting and it keeps it fun rather than just having like a job shop that builds the same bike every day. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, tell us about the history of Reeb then, as you understand it. Yeah. So I haven't been with Reeb since the beginning. So most of this, most of these stories are, are, are known, but, um, so Reeb started, I think roughly nine years ago. Um, it was started by Dale, of Oscar Blues and Chad of the marketing department at Oscar Blues. And they both rode mountain bikes, um, single speed mountain bikes. And they were on some sort of uh, Maverick kick. Uh, Maverick was uh, based out of Boulder, I believe based out of Boulder. So a lot of those guys had ridden Mavericks and like knew the owners of Maverick. And Maverick is the they did a proprietary suspension platform on a mountain bike frame. So they built all of their own suspension components for the mountain bikes. So, you know, pretty cool stuff. It wasn't just like slapping RockShock or Fox onto a manufactured frame. They like, they did the whole platform. So it was kind of neat. Um, but they, um, trying to figure out how to tell the story best. So the barn in Lyons where we manufacture our bikes is a hundred year old barn, wood barn that Dale started canning beer in. Um, he like, he canned Dale's pale ale for the first time in this barn that we now manufacture bikes in. And he got into beer because he was like getting done with riding a, like the local mountain bike trail hall ranch. Uh, he was like, getting done with a ride and passed by somebody's house that was homebrewing in his garage and he stopped by and like, you know, the rest is history or whatever. Um, I started homebrewing beer and then it turns into Oscar blues. So there's a lot of steps in between, but he got pretty lucky, I think. Um, but then Chad, uh, I think Chad was kind of doing the same thing. He was like in high school or something, lived in town and um, he rode past, Oscar blues and they were canning beer and he's like, Hey, um, I like beer. Can I, uh, can I come can beer? And, and like, uh, I don't exactly know what the story with Maverick was, but I, there was some sort of like race team or, uh, they had some Mavericks that they were giving away. And, and Chad was like, Hey, can I come can some beer 
in the shop uh, and like get this Maverick bike. And so like somehow that all worked out. And um, in the early days of, of Oscar blues, they would um, put a garbage bag in with every 12 pack of beer and like a CD for some like up and coming blues band or jam band or like, you know, fill in the blank, whatever kind of band. And so they were promoting good music. Um, but they were also promoting recycling of the cans, which was kind of a new thing. Um, for like, I guess recycling is not a new thing, but like people weren't recycling beer cans and they had a, a like a contest that if you brought in like 5,000 Dale's cans, you got a Maverick mountain bike. So I think that's a big reason why like Oscar blues kind of got as big as they are. Is like people were trying to drink 5,000 beers so they could get a mountain bike. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, what a marketing plan, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so maybe a couple of years goes by, they're all racing mountain bikes together. Um, and, uh, Dale's mountain bike was stolen in like downtown Denver or something. And they were like, well, I don't want to just buy another bike. But he makes, let's pool some resources together and start a mountain bike company. And the mountain bike company started as the Colorado hardtail single speed most single speeds were like 72 degree head tube angle you know not for aggressive riding and reeb started with making a um it was like 69 degree or 68 degree head angle hardtail that was single speed only and used gates belt drive and, you know, it had like a 130 or 140 fork on it, which was like unheard of for hardtails. Like it was like, that's like the, that's way too much travel for a hardtail, but not in Colorado and not for the way that these guys were riding bikes. So, um, yeah. Reeb went to a bunch of the, the big, uh, single speed races. They went to a bunch of the single speed worlds and, and, uh, Oscar blues had this giant Dale's pale ale, like RV, like tour bus thing. So it was always like Reeb brought the party and they were bringing these, you know, raw steel hardtails. And I think it just kind of created a stir and uh, people were into it. It was the blue collar. It was like the seemingly blue collar bike brand that um, started from a company that brewed beer. And you know, it just so happens that a lot of people that ride single speed like beer for some reason, I don't know why, but, uh, <laughs> it just kind of worked. And, um, I think they had 10 frames made for like samples from a local welder, like local, there's, there's a bunch of big frame builders in the area. Um, I believe this person may have even like worked at spot cycles or something, but, um, they had 10 made and they, they liked him and they wanted to go forward with it. And they didn't know how, I don't think they knew how to scale it. So they had a sample made in Taiwan and it was just like worst case scenario. Like we don't want this. We want to make an American product. 
we want to create, we want to open this bike company to create opportunities for other like-minded people to build these bikes. You know, Dale kind of set forth this vision of if, if I make a bike company, people will come to build these bikes. And that's how it started. And it evolved into making gravel bikes and touring bikes and fat bikes. Um, we were kind of one of the first um, adopters. Of, uh, I wouldn't say first, but we adopted the fat bike and we showed how much fun they are. Um, every week, Reeb does a, a ride in our, um, in our area that has some of the best mountain biking in the front range. And we have some fat bike trails that are just ripping and they are fast and they're packed in and like fat bikes are so fun up there. So it just, it kind of worked in the best way. And then, uh, how do you sell hardtails in Colorado or how do you keep selling hardtails in Colorado? Like Colorado is the Rocky mountains. Hardtails aren't necessarily the, the perfect bike for all conditions in Colorado. So uh, Chris started working on a full suspension design and uh, he came up with a suspension platform that was probably loosely based off of several different bikes that he rode and worked well and used linkage, which is a suspension bike uh, kind of calculator. It's, it's pretty much like a, a fancy Excel spreadsheet. Um, it outputs, you know, X, Y coordinates to do math and, you know, a lot of magic computer things. And, you know, and it figures out leverage ratio and, and anti-squad and, and all of that. So he figured it out. And then the first prototype was literally Home Depot aluminum tubing and water jet wow. parts that were finished machined on a bridge port. And they welded it up. And I don't even know if they heat treated it. They, they probably did. But, you know, it's like mystery aluminum built with like hardware store bolts and water jet parts. And Chad went and like won a race on it. And like, wow, the, ge the geometry was all off. Like it wasn't, it was a proof of concept. It wasn't production ready in any way. And, but it worked. And I think everybody at Reeve was like, holy cow, we just made a suspension bike. And then it got to the point of like, we need a CNC machine. We need, like Chris needs to spend a ton of time on design and like making this thing manufacturable. And, and um, he did that to make this production bike. And then I came on right when production needed to happen. And like, we needed to, we needed to make, I think we made like 30, I think we made 40 of them the first year. So 40 squeebs the first year that it was released. And we're a small bike company. We make 200 bikes a year. So when you just come out with a new product that is way different than anything that you've ever done before, you know, I think it did pretty damn well. And obviously it like, yeah. it, it got me on board. Um, it was a really good bike. It just, it needed uh, refinement and like, just like every bike does, you know, every bike isn't a penny farthing. 
you know, today, like whoever yeah. or like the Wright brothers when they like, or whoever actually invented the bicycle, it wasn't the Wright brothers. They did the, they, they were just a bike shop. They, they flew first, but, um, everything is in refinement. Like there's no perfect bike. You look at the, you know, 2022 specialized or Trek or whatever in six months after that bike is released, there's something better. They've got some way to make it better. You know, there's some new material or new geometry. So my job has just been, you know, proving that bike to the world that it's awesome and refining it as I go. And it's been, it's been a super fun road. Like I, I've locked out for sure to find this super small company that wanted to bring me on board and, and like kind of let me fly my wings or spread my wings. Yeah. Um, so you had the experience of riding a mass produced carbon full suspension bike, trying to race it, the, the failures that you experienced on it because it wasn't designed for your use case. And now you're in charge of engineering and manufacturing a full suspension mountain bike what do you do differently? I mean, everything, but like, what is it that you're trying? Cause I mean, you're, you're not really targeting the same customer demographic or the same need, you know, a high end carbon fiber bike is sleek and it's lightweight and it's, it's, you know, you were talking about the difference between being planted and fast versus fun and boinging off of rocks and stuff. So anyway, <laughs> what is it that you do yep. different and how is it, you know, like, cause I think, you know, you're, you know, exactly where you're trying to fit and, uh, and you, you know, you just keep moving toward that. So it was off of a, um, you know, hardtail single speed mentality. That's the bike that like lasts forever. Like, like, you know, derailers don't break. Um, you know, shifters don't gum up it's the bike that just like always works so we needed to make that full suspension bike the same way like we had a really good customer base of people that bought our bike because it's like the utilitarian bike it's it's always going to work like you can ride a single speed through a mud pit put it in your garage for a year take it back out and it's going to probably work like the rear shock's not going to leak air or like your derailleur cables aren't going to be like rusty or like full of crap. So, um, one thing that I was really impressed with the squeeze that was just like, it just like made it for me was all of the suspension pivots were like directly from McMaster car. And the main pivots were 12 millimeter shoulder bolts, like steel solid shoulder bolts. And I was like, damn, that's not going to (laughs) break. And so, and if it does, you can get it the next day from McMaster car. Yeah. So I was like, this is awesome. Like I just came from a bike that I was like, I would have like, a grab baggie of new pivot hardware that I would have to like take with me on weekends. And, and, you know, like if I like broke a, a a pivot, I'd have to like extract the remaining threads out of the frame and like try to put a new one in there. And 
And so it's so refreshing to see good hardware. And I was like, man, this is the, this is like the utilitarian full suspension aluminum bike. And that has always been my focus on our bike. Um, I, we've gone through, we've gone through a lot of revisions on the frame and we have gone from the stock McMaster car bolts to having Paragon machine works manufacture titanium versions of those same bolts. So like still a 12 millimeter shoulder with a threaded end and like a big hex, but we were just having McMaster Paragon machine them out of tie for us and to make it lighter. And that was working really well. And I, I realized it was like, well, you know, to sell a bike these days, it has to be, it has to look good. It has to be somewhat lightweight, but more importantly, it has to function well. And we are definitely on the function well, look good, but we've always been a little <laughs> bit more on the hefty side of things. Um, and that's just because we're, we're trying to build the bike that's going to last, that doesn't have to be in the bike shop all the time and, you know, have problems. And so yeah. um, I looked back at, at this pivot hardware that we were making and I started to um, kind of prototype new 7075 hardware in my own shop. Um, and we were doing, we're, we still do a lot of things on, on our manual ways. Uh, we outsource all of our pivot hardware now to Turnamics, which is the parent company of industry nine. So, you know, keeping it in the bike world, but knowing that they have screw machines that can make good bolts, um, every time, like, I don't want to stand in front of a lathe and single point thread every pivot bolt that goes onto a bike because, I did that yeah. for a little bit <laughs> and you just realize that you are really wrapping dollar bills around every bolt. <laughs> um, yeah. But I started to test 7075 hardware on my bike and, and realize that like, if I'm riding as big as I am, 99% of the customer base out there, is, is never going to have a problem with this bolt. Like if I can't break this bolt, somebody else isn't going to break this bolt. And then we had the awesome opportunity to hire Jeff Linowski to be on our team. And that was, that was huge <laughs> for us because we're this, we're this tiny company that is marketed by, um, you know, market, like a light amount of marketing, but mostly word of mouth. Like, stoked customers talk about our bikes and that was doing really well, but we still needed to like get over that hump of we're like right in this in between uh, like bike manufacturers. Like, you know, we build 200 frames a year, um, which is not, we aren't mass producing frames, but we also aren't the frame builder that has the same frame in a fixture for like three months or, you know, like, we, yeah. we are, we are a production shop, but we still needed that like notor like notoriety to like get more eyes on our bikes. So in a real funny kind of uh, turn of events, 
uh, Jeff and I were talking on Instagram and he was getting ready to leave giant and sign with this other company. And he said, this other company doesn't make any bikes, any hardtails that I would like to ride. Can Reed make me a custom hardtail? And I was like, yeah, sure. Shit. And then maybe like a half hour went by and I messaged him back and I said, Hey, we have a pretty good full suspension bike too. Why don't we talk? <laughs> and we kind of all got together and, and realized it was a great investment to um, kind of steal Jeff from being a professional, just a professional mountain biker that is just sponsored by a company to being a full-time employee that works on product feedback and also product reach. So for the longest time, I was like the heavier, shreddier person that rode a squeeb. And then we brought on Jeff that he weighs a little bit more than I do, but he's also like an inch taller than I am. So we have these like two massive dudes that can ride bikes pretty well, proving our product and just making it better for everybody else. Um, we, yeah. uh, you know, we don't do any uh, crazy tensile strength testing on our frames. Uh, we build our frames to um, the same standards that every other bike company uses, but we kind of just piggybacked off on like, you know, if you design a bike well, correct tubing and have good manufacturing practices, it's not going to fail in an unpredictable way. Like it, it's, bikes have been fairly figured out. Like we're not aiming for making the next latest frame and like reducing materials everywhere. We are going out and riding the bike, yeah. figuring out how to make it ride better and using good manufacturing practices to make a really strong bike. So Jeff helped with that one. Uh, Jeff has been helping with um, hardtail stuff too, making fun, playful hardtails because this long, low, and slack trend works really well for trail bikes, but it doesn't fully um, translate to hardtails just because of um, sagged riding position and seat tube angle and everything. So Jeff has been experimenting a ton with um, different hardtail geometry and, you know, he does trial stuff and he does, uh, you know, hops over logs on trails and hops up rocks and he rides bikes a little differently than most people, but he has a very good feel on how different geometry affects the ride quality. So it's been awesome to work with him and to just continually evolve bikes. Like, you know, we have, we have a bunch of different models that is a great offering for, you know, anybody. Um, some people may really like our gravel bikes, but not our mountain bikes. And that's why we have a variety. It's nice to kind of have the full spectrum for whoever walks into our shop and wants to ride one of our bikes. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to ask you also about uh, recently you started building up your own personal shop. I think you've had your own shop for a while, but you moved, you bought a house. 
And then you just got a new or new to you 90s era Fidal CNC mill that looks freaking cherry. Uh, that's uh, ProSize Metalworks in your own little shop there. And I've seen some of the random projects that you've done. Uh, I guess, like, tell us about what the scope and the aim of that is as, like, a side business or as a hobby or, like, what do you intend to do? I see that uh, you have a lot of skill and a lot of potential to do all sorts of cool stuff. What are you planning on? Yeah, so ProSize Metalworks um, all started because I was staying at work too late every day at that medical machine shop and using the equipment at the shop. The owner of that company, um, he, he was an awesome guy and really respected what I did, but I was overusing, you know, I was overstaying my welcome of, you know, being at work, using the equipment, doing, you know, wear and tear on, on company machines. So, we worked out a pretty good deal of if I busted my butt and, and um, kind of improved like the maintenance program and, and just kind of how everything worked at that company that I would get a Bridgeport as a bonus. And this may sound crazy, but um, it was a right time, like right, you know, it was a right timing kind of situation. We had, we had two facilities and we were um, moving all of the machines from one facility into the larger facility. So we were not downsizing, but we were um, just right-sizing all the equipment into one building. And we had an excess of mills, of Bridgeport mills. And we only needed two, but we had four. Um, so I kind of just saw that happening and I started talking with the owner and, and made the deal with him that if I, um, promised to stay at the company for a certain period of time and bust my butt that instead of getting a money bonus that year, he would, uh, have a machine for me. And <laughs> when you get a Bridgeport, you, and you rent, you don't just put that Bridgeport in your rental apartment, you have to find a shop. So um, I found a, a corner of a shop in North Boulder and I was renting it from a guy that was doing uh, composite bicycle frames. And um, I just kind of stuck it in there for a while. And I was like, what am I doing? Like I just put a boat anchor in a shop, not like, it was actually, it's a very nice Bridgeport. It's like a 2012. It's not a Bridgeport. It's a sharp. It's a, you know, a splash of a Bridgeport, but um, it's really nice. And the company bought it new. And I know everybody by their first name that have run that Bridgeport. So it's <laughs> like, you know, it's cherry. And I had to make a decision of, I can't just rent a shop and like start um, getting all this equipment without having some sort of um, business to make it work. And so I was doing welding and I had my own welder and I had some of my own fabrication equipment, but 
I started to build up that shop and, um, when you get a mill, you get a lathe. It seems like I would say a year after I got that mill, I got a lathe and it's like, well, if you have that, you kind of have to have tooling for it. So you just start like holding all of this stuff. And it's like, well, I need a bandsaw to cut material for the mill. And like, I need a device and like all this stuff. And it just starts snowballing into, well, I need to make an actual business out of this. And um, there is a very large um, uh, bicycle reseller in the Boulder area that started very small. And they reached out to me um, to help them machine some very particular things for their business. They needed ways to hold um, bicycle parts in a photo studio so they could photo a part the same way every time. So like if you're selling like a hundred derailers, you want to take a photo of that derailleur the same way every single time, because it's just going to make your, your eBay store look more professional and, you know, yeah. a way to hold a bicycle up in a studio by the crank arm, but, is fast so like the photographer can like roll in a new bike stand it up without the bike falling over and like tearing the the backdrop paper and you know like all that nonsense but they wanted to figure out a way to make something that was just easy and it needed to be powder coated white so like they could go into photoshop and and easily edit out anything that was holding up the product so i did a lot of work for them and they would they would come to me with a, a basic idea or drawing of what they needed. And then I would make it. And it was like all manually machined stuff. And I just did this on the nights and weekends. And it was cool working for a, a bicycle oriented company that wanted parts that didn't exist. So I, I kind of built this business model on I want to machine parts for friends and bicycling related areas because nobody else does that. Like there isn't just a machine shop that like helps people out. Like it wasn't, this isn't, this is never going to be my full time gig. Um, this is all, this is just like a, a business that pays for itself and that can like, spread the opportunity for somebody to have like a custom part in their hand without going to like a, a job shop that doesn't know what you're talking about. So, um, yeah. I did a lot of welding for them. I did a lot of like, uh, machined parts, like making a dummy seat post that is 27, two millimeters, 30.9 millimeters and 31.6 millimeters. So if they were like stripping a frame, they didn't, you know, you don't want to clamp the, the bike stand on the frame tubing. So it was like a quick stepped seat post that could fit, you know, 90% of bikes that they could keep in the stand and then just use like a seat tube clamp and just, just parts to make their lives easier. Um, I did, I welded all of their pegboard stands for their workbenches and, like they have tons of workbenches and I just did like basic T 
TIG welded steel framing to hold um, metal pegboards. But the owner of the company had this mentality of you make a really nice, clean looking shop that's five vest. You know, everything has a place and you're going to make it better for the employees that want to work there. And anytime you do a tour with anybody, whether it's like a customer or an investor, if you make your shop look really nice and tidy and kind of like cutting edge or like that modern look where everything's like raw steel welded, like, you know, people think it looks cool and they, they believe in your business. And so I had just had this awesome opportunity to work with them for tons of projects. Like, I mean, I still do some stuff for them. I haven't done anything lately, but it was like four or five years of, doing work for them. And that evolved into doing welding projects, uh, making like custom table legs for woodworkers. So they could put like a live edge, um, slab on like custom fabricated steel legs. Um, I just love helping out people in the bike community. Like if they need like a suspension bolt that, or a pivot bolt, that's no longer manufactured, like, I'll help them out with that. Um, it's just always just been this um, side business that I wanted to create cool parts for people, but also be able to um, run a small business and just not lose money. Um, I mean, you yeah. you'll always lose money as a small business when you don't take it full time, but it at least pays for the equipment and pays for the consumables and makes it, you know, make sense. Um, yeah. So that you can personally own machinery for your projects and for your satisfaction and that you're defraying the cost of that while also getting interesting projects coming in that help other people. Yeah. That, that, you know, interesting projects is just a way to learn, you know, you have, so you were posting today about that, um, that tungsten holder, you, you know, you prototyped that part with a two by four. And then over the years you looked at it and you're like, how can I make that different? And then you came up with this idea to machine this part that looks cool, but that all came out of your head. And it was like your process of making that part. When somebody comes to you with a part, with a drawing, sometimes you don't know how to make it or, um, or you know of a better way to make it or, you know, whatever, like you get to work with that customer to figure out the best, like the best product for that customer, like the best functionality of that part. And then you get to make it your own way. And if they don't like it or if they love it, they're going to tell you. And, then you just evolve from there. Um, so like, you know, that, that tungsten holder, I'm sure you started with, how am I going to hold this? Or like, how am I going to machine this? When you have a customer, they start with here, I have this (laughs) part. I don't think that like, yeah, make this part. And like your first question is like, or your first, like, you know, idea is like, I can't manufacture that part. (laughs) It's got some like undercut or like some design parameter that like 
makes it impossible to make without it being like a thousand dollars, you know, like, yeah, we're going to have to wire, wire EDM that square corner. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, the classic, um, we had a lot of engineers come into that medical machine shop from the school of mines and you get these young engineers that know so much and they're so smart and they like, they're, they are, you know, I'm serious. Like they are extremely smart, smart, but when it comes to milling a square corner, you can't mill a square corner with a round end mill, you know? And it's like, Oh, well, if that's like a critical to function feature, we're going to have to do a redesign. <laughs> so yeah. it's just as, as the person that's making the part talking with the customers, designing a part, it's fun to, um, know how it goes both ways. Um, yeah, yeah it's just, I, I feel like having my little side business is just like, you know, parts come and go, but it's, it's all learning. Like it's all different. It's not just me welding or machining a bike part. Sometimes it's something that's really complicated and I, I have to like, you know, really think about it and really scratch my head on, on how to make it the best way that I can. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I'm so excited to see what you keep doing that. Uh, the part that I, you mentioned the tungsten holder, that was a block of two mm-hmm. by four with two drilled holes, good tungstens on the on the left and bad tungstens on the right. As I screw them up, I'm not the best welder, so I do a lot of following on my tungstens. And I got that idea from Adam Sklar like five or ten years ago. I saw him, he had something like that, and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then this, just lately, I've been seeing more and more of these really talented people making pretty looking parts. And I'm thinking of you and a bunch of people who are like doing 3D modeling and tool paths. And not usually when I'm designing stuff, I do it pretty basic. But anyway, the point is that thing that I made was inspired at least in part by the Moto handlebar holders that you posted pictures of with all the cool 3D surfacing on it. And you posted that cool um, yeah. TIG welding uh, uh, foot pedal cover that it's just decorative, but it's freaking cool. And I feel like it's important for me to continually challenge myself to do new stuff. And I'm sometimes I get a little intimidated. I see other people are really, really kicking ass doing great work. And I'm like, Oh man, I got to step up my game. And that's a good thing. You should feel that occasionally, (laughs) whatever it is that you do, you should feel like you, you want to step up your game when you see other people really kicking ass. And so, so thanks to you and everybody else lately, who's been just, I've, things are evolving in machining. It's getting more and more toward 3d modeling and 3d machining. And I need to continue to grow with that. And you know, that, that wasn't my, like, I mean, of course I'm going to model and and machine parts, like do, do that at Reeb every day and, and make some really, really, we, we do some crazy 3d surfacing on our mountain bike frames. Like the, the bottom bracket seat tube cluster on our squeeb has, I mean, it's, the whole outside of the part is 3D surfaced with a 516 ball end mill with like 20,000 step over. It is an insane part. But, you know, coming into my home shop, um, I have been listening to a lot of podcasts lately um, because it's just, I don't know, music gets old and I, I want to like get inspiration from people. And 
uh, I've been listening to pretty much, I've been listening to Within Tolerance a bunch, and I've been listening to uh, um, the uh, Business of Machining um, because they do a really good job of stepping through every nuance of running a machine shop. Like I, at Reeb, I am, I, I guess the fabrication shop manager. Um, I've, I've been there the longest, so I would say I'm the, the manager and I like to try to run the shop very efficiently. So that podcast helps with just different ways to look at things and, and then my home shop, same way, like John Saunders started out of his garage and and is doing pretty well for himself now. And uh, I, I believe on Within Tolerance, they were talking with, I forget the guy's name, um, he makes really fancy um, torch holders, uh, TIG torch holders that um, yeah, Br- are anodized. Brad. Yeah, Brad. He's and he's in your he's not that far from you. I think he's in Colorado there too. No, he's in Colorado, and he I know he uses that uh, that he uses an anodizer down in Broomfield. Um, she goes by it's a she works at a company, but she goes by Ashley anodized it, and she does these crazy crazy cool um, like tie dye and faded. Um, anodized parts and i listened to that within tolerance podcast and one thing he said was i don't how long the part takes to make i machine this part to look good and that's a big difference on how people machine parts you know at reeb we machine parts to look good but more importantly function well with the bike and we are running production. For example, with those, those moto risers that I made in my shop, I was like, I'm going to machine this part to look really good. And, you know, I'll reduce my step over. So the tool path is, you know, super smooth and looks really nice. And, and that comment that he made was that, you know, I don't machine parts just to function. I machine parts to just look good. And then I went to saw that, you know, this anodizer was doing all these cool tie-dyes on his parts and the parts were just beautiful. And he's like, oh, I'm going to spend some more time solid modeling a part so it just is all 3D surfaced. And why not? I'm making one of them. I'm in my garage. I'm making it for myself. I don't care if it takes, you know, 30 minutes of surfacing or or two hours of surfacing. I just wanted to look good and be cool. And having a CNC machine in your garage helps with that. Yeah, big time. Um, so I want, I want to make a, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot and it has to do with the Fidal about uh, building bridges in like wherever wherever you are in life. So Frank, the guy that hired me at the med device manufacturer, he left that company after, you know, a good amount of years uh, to work for Fidal and be the 
the Rocky Mountain region Fidaltech. And at this point in my life, I knew of Fidal as being a really good machine, but we actually had one at that shop. Like it was like the I don't know clapped out uh, machine that we actually don't we actually donated it to the high school and they didn't want it because it was old. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like I didn't have a real good start with Fidal, but over the years um, I kept in touch with Frank, and um, when I started at Reeb. Reeb had a Fidal and shit you not my first day at Reeb Frank was there working on the Fidal at Reeb so my old boss was at Reeb and I was like oh That's man funny. this is just a whole a whole circle really happening right now and um we were pretty self-proficient with that machine but every once in a while Fidals are different um I was pretty comfortable with uh, Fanuc controls and, and Mitsubishi's and, and, uh, DMG Mori stuff. Like all of that was familiar to me, but Fidal was just like overly simplified, you know, made from scratch, uh, machine. Like it started in California by Frank and Dave and Larry. So Fidal, F-A-D-A-L, Frank and Dave and Larry. And they, they were three engineers <laughs> that figured out how to make a machine in their garage and they produced or they uh, designed their own backend software and it's all Fidal. It's not just like a FANUC controller on a Fidal machine. It's all them. So yeah. it's pretty simple. Uh, so when you, when you have a really good relationship with the Fidal tech, you get to spend like two hours on the phone and the, maybe 45 minutes is actually talking about the machine. And then the rest of the time is like, you know, just building a relationship. And so we are making stuff on our Fidal at Reeb that most Fidal owners say, how in the hell are you doing that? And I think the big thing is, being aware of the machine um, and, and being nice to it and, you know, petting it nicely and talking, you know, talking to it nicely sometimes. But I think the machine at Reeve is in 1992 or 1993, and we're doing some 3D surfacing that is wild on a Fidal. But, you know, yeah. we're not just, we're not just like, trying to run it as fast and hard as we can. We're trying to make good parts. So, you know, the parts may take a little bit longer than normal, but they're going to look great. And um, over time, you know, servos go out. Uh, the Fidal has, uh, <laughs> Fidal has a bunch of circuit boards that control everything and nothing's too crazy. But the cool thing about Fidal is, is like, um, they've pretty much been the same for a long time. So if you have like an access card that goes out, Frank will just like have one in his car. And like, he just has like a box full of cards that you can just like swap out to troubleshoot. And they're very simple machines to troubleshoot, which is the best part for a very small company that, you know, doesn't have a ton of money to spend on a, you know, a crazy fancy machine. 
So over time, yeah. I got to learn more about the machines, learn their ups and downs, and and how to make a pedal run nicely. And um, I've always wanted a CNC machine in my shop. Never knew, like in my personal shop, but I never knew how that would ever happen. And you just you build these bridges with people and you build these relationships that if you, if you treat somebody nicely and you like you build this, this connection with somebody, you know, they're always going to help you out when you least expect it. And, um, so Frank calls me one day, maybe three weeks after, uh, my girlfriend and I just bought a house in, um, Pinewood Springs, Colorado. So just outside of Lyons, like, short commute to work, um, big garage, big shop scenario, like poured all of our heart and soul into buying a house. And he calls me up and he's like, Hey, I've got this really clean Fidal that you should buy. And I was like, Frank, I just bought a house. Like, how could I possibly ever do that? And he's like, it's too good of a deal. You can't pass it up, figure it out. And then like hung up. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh man, this is a nightmare. Like, what do I do? Like my heart's being pulled in so many different ways. And I talked with my girlfriend and, and we, we knew that we had the room for it barely. It's like, it, it took up like, you know, a quarter of my allotted space that I was planning for. But, um, with my metalworking company, I, was doing a lot of um, steel fabrication. So like buying 20 foot sticks of raw stock, cutting it down, cutting, grinding, welding, dirty work, heavy, hot, you know, just, you know, laborious work. And our new house, the, the shop is located right below the living space and it's a nice garage. And I didn't really want to like do a bunch of cutting, grinding and welding. I mean, TIG welding, of course, but I didn't want to be MIG welding and grinding down welds and, and that kind of stuff. So I was like, well, a CNC machine is going to be a cleaner operation with higher payout. If I'm, if I'm selling any parts off of this machine or like selling any work that I produce. So I was like, well, maybe I, sell off a bunch of fabrication equipment or not a bunch, but like sandblast cabinet, a cold cut saw, like stuff that I don't necessarily need anymore and to get into the CNC machine. Um, But I still couldn't really figure out how to um, make the money work. And I reached out to a close friend that is helping with a lot of the engineering work on Read bikes and suspension platforms and and I was like, Hey, I've got this opportunity. Um he's very big into CNC machining and, and kinda has my same uh mentality of of if you can make it yourself, make it, you know, like don't rely on other people. And he helped me out with the machine purchase and we kinda went into it together. And I've got a cherry 1997 Fidal in my garage that was owned by a microscope shop that is the cleanest Fidal that I've ever personally seen. <laughs> it's insane. It, it is it's, so clean looking. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild. It's, um, I joke around that we're just homesteading up here. Like we got some chickens, um, we got a CNC machine, you know, we're just homesteading. We can, we're self, self-proficient now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I got, when I first got a CNC machine, you know, it wasn't terribly expensive for, for what it was. And I had just quit my job and I was, it was like a little stint, I thought. And then I just never had to go back to work because I started selling stuff and I wanted to keep riding that wave as long as I could and just keep my overhead low and keep doing it. And that just kind of worked for me. So I never really had a period where I personally owned a CNC machine and I felt like I had a lot of freedom to just like do stuff for fun on it. And I feel like I'm trying to get back into that more with like this project I did this week, like weekenders, you know, just like little things here and there. Cause like my machine needs to pay the bills. I have a lot more bills now. Cause like it's a real business and like we have like real rent and I have an employee for payroll and like all this stuff. So it's like, I need to treat yep. it seriously. And it's, it's what a luxury to have that capability and that machine. And when you just go out to the shop, say like, I'm just going to make something cool today. Like it doesn't need to make me money. It doesn't need to be fast. I don't need to get it done now. I could put 15 hours into it and decide not to make it. This is just for, for fun and for learning. And uh, what a, what a treat. Yeah. And one thing that I've seen um, you do that really impressed me was um, invest into work holding. Um, that's something yeah. that I will probably never do, but I, I can get, <laughs> Uh, I, am I'm, I'm pretty scrappy. Um, I can figure out ways to, to make some, some pretty home built or like DIY, uh, fixturing stuff. But, um, one really cool thing about work holding is you have the ability to have any setup in your machine at any given time. And you use a standard tool library, so carousel full of tools that will machine aluminum parts. And you can swap out some vice draws or you can, you know, swap out that rad rotary setup that you, that you have. And yeah, maybe you come in on the weekend and do a, a we call them G jobs, you know, government jobs uh, where you can, yep. you, you don't affect the, you know, it's one thing when you're, when you own the company and you own the machine because, you know, you just use your own end mills, but you know, you can, you have the ability to, set up a job quickly without disturbing a production run of parts and you can like machine a tungsten holder and yeah you know sometimes that sometimes you have to do that because it's a learning experience like you figure out new ways to hold the part you figure out new ways to use um tooling so like in my instance um thomas hosford helped me out with a bunch of tool holders. I bought, uh, I think 14 cat 40 tool holders for him from him, but they're all end mill holders. And, you know, so you don't have like a bunch of different collets to set up the random tooling that you have. And I have a stockpile of, um, random end mills from, from life kind of, um, some of the tool makers that I used to work with, uh, a couple of them left and went to work for Ball Aerospace. And one thing about Ball Aerospace is you can't bring in your own toolbox and like 
have a drawer full of end mills that have been used for other jobs. And, you know, like you're like, Oh, I, I have this quarter inch end mill in my toolbox. So let me machine on this aerospace part that's going to go to space. They're like, Oh no, <laughs> you need to use an end mill for yeah. that. That's traceable and doesn't have like, you know, a chip tooth that's going to make a corner radius at the end of a shoulder that like prevents the rocket ship going to space or some, you know, something like that. Yeah. So, um, I bought a ton of kind of surplus tooling from those guys when they left, um, the med device company. And I just had it sitting around and I, um, inherited a, Kennedy machinist box from my great uncle who was a, a machinist and he was a machinist in the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, I think eighties. Um, he has this full Kennedy toolbox full of tooling. And I actually used on that, uh, on those moto risers, um, I machined, I used some tooling from that Kennedy box that some of those end mills were probably 30, 40 years old and they were in great shape. That's awesome. And like there was a, there was a chamfer mill that I used. There is a three flute, um, three ace end mill that I use. That's like old. It's probably older than me. And it was cool to like chuck that up into an end mill holder and cut with it. And it's like, holy shit. Like I just, you know, I got to figure out how to have the low cost, machine set up in my garage without, you know, going out and buying $90 end mills because sometimes you just don't need that. Sometimes you're machining one part and you can get away with yeah. slower feeds and speeds and just make it happen. You don't need to run everything at 300 inches a minute. Like just slow that thing down and baby this end mill because you don't want to like break a $40 end mill on a part that is worth $50. Yeah. <laughs> So learning is cool, like learning to do things different ways, figuring out how to make it work in the long run, whether it's starting a business to make a profit or starting a business to um, kind of fuel your hobby. Yeah. Are you going to, do you think that you'll, there will ever be a time where you'll make bikes in your own shop or that's what Reeb's for? Uh, make bikes in my shop. Yeah. Um, I have no plans for that. Um, that's, that's why I work at Reeb is to build bikes. Um, there's bikes that Reeb shouldn't produce necessarily like the, the Breger, the bike, the gearbox bike that I built. Um, that bike is a 190 travel front, 185 travel rear suspension <laughs> gearbox bike that is built like a trophy truck. Like it weighs 43 pounds. It will stand up to anything that I throw at it. That's not a marketable product for a bike company. That's something that's so specialized that a form of it could be a production bike. And I'm not saying it's not going to be like we're going to pursue something in that nature but that's that's a reeb thing like i don't want to compete with anything that reeb does um that's why i work there that's why that's it's my full-time job um 
yeah. in my shop, I, you know, I want to produce the things. I've got this really crazy harebrained idea lately that I want to build a uh, mountain bike based uh, two stroke trials bike. So like moto trials, but kind of like mountain bike weight and maneuverability. So I, I've like, I'm into these like really oddball, you know, spend way too much time on it kind of projects for bikes. But um, yeah, Reeb, Reeb is definitely the bike side of things. And, and um, I just want to make parts of my garage. It, like, yeah, they'll be bike related, be, you know, something that is ever going to compete with um, Reeb sales or anything like that. Yeah. When I met, uh, this is a, what, a humble brag. When I met Tom Lipton and got to talk to him some in California and asked him about his story and his life and stuff, he was just saying, he's like, yeah, no, I never went to college or anything. I just, you know, I just always tried to surround myself with people who were smarter than me and just tried to always be learning something. And I feel like when you have the jobs that you've had and then when you have the approach of like having your own shop where the point of it is just to learn cool stuff and to try and make cool stuff and take on projects and work that are gonna benefit you it's like that's how that's how you get to be someone like tom when you're tom's age you know just someone who's just got such a a broad um set of experiences and, uh, and and skills and so much knowledge and ability to apply it to so many different things. And when you don't know the answer, you have a pretty good sense of how to figure it out, you know? Yeah, that's, you know, some people, I call it a curse, but some people have that gift of uh, you can't really trust anybody else to make what you want. So you just have to figure out and do it yourself. And, uh, yeah. that's how you end up with a CNC machine in your garage. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. I feel that way about yeah. auto mechanics. I feel like I do not want to work on my car, but time and time again, they, it just doesn't work that there's no such thing as a mechanic who will actually fix your car. Right. It seems so it's like, I'm stuck wrenching on my old yeah. freaking truck. I think it's a racket. Yeah, I think the auto industry knows that I that... just uh, <laughs> thrown the towel on, but then you like get the bill and you're like, Oh God, damn it. like I, I did the math in my head of how much <laughs> I would pay myself to do that. And then you get the bill and it's like twice as much. And you're like, Oh, I should have just done it. <laughs> but like the, the issue is not even just the money and it is the money, but it's like every time they don't actually fix it or they screw something up or like you go to get an alignment and then one of your hubcaps is gone or like they try <laughs> to fix this thing and they bill you and then that they didn't really fix anything. They replaced stuff that didn't need it or like every single time, oh, they were going to fix this leak, but it still leaks though. And you spent $3,000. It's just, it's insane, man. It's like, it just never ends. Never do you, it's like one in 10 times do you pay professionals to fix your car and have it actually fixed. It's yeah. Insane. Yeah, that's so. Anyway, that's, that's beside the point. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. anyway, uh, this has been a lovely conversation, and uh, I'm real excited to see what you do as your shop comes into its own. And I'm really glad we got to sort of tell your story and and what you know of the Reeb story. 
Yeah, and uh, thanks for uh, putting all of your thoughts out on uh, out on Instagram. Like we've been we've been following along with you. Like everybody at Reeb has been following along with you um, for a long time, and and honestly, the way that you um, kind of publish your um, your mistakes and your the way that you figure out things and the, your fixture development and all of your your very perfectly timed frame building tooling from when Anvil stopped stopped producing stuff. <laughs> um, it's been awesome to watch your journey, and honestly, that's very it's a very marketable thing for you of, of how you are portraying your business. So it's been it's been super fun to kind of you know be friends over the internet and get to talk to you more. Yeah, absolutely. And since you reminded me and I've got you here, uh, you Reeb Cycles and you being one of the head fabricators or one of the, you know, three people who welds bikes there, you got one of the first six early adopter frame fixtures that I made. And I think you guys have built more bikes on that than anybody has built on any of my frame fixtures just because the volume of bikes that you do. Uh, what are your, what are a couple of your favorite things about that fixture? uh yeah yeah so um we we were coming off of a frame fixture that was built um it's uh it's a great frame fixture but it was built like with a drill press and cold roll steel so it it used the quote unquote squareness of cold roll to align the whole fixture which you know cold roll isn't actually square so it it ultimately doesn't work and we were doing um i would say on average we have uh several frames through a fixture a day um it's not just you know we don't set up a fixture and and take a week to put tubes into it um it's it's production based so we do everything from dirt jumpers to um, gravel bikes and fixture setup is, is key that it repeats every time. And our old fixture had a bunch of shims in it and it wasn't straight. And like, we would, um, we would have to do some alignment out of the fixture before the, um, frame was fully welded. The best thing about your fixture is it is repeatable and, the scales on it are easy to read and it's awesome to just put frames in and out of that fixture. Um, like we being an early adopter, uh, I think when we first approached you, we were like, Hey, we're probably going to put more frames through this than anybody else that's, that is going to buy this right away. So, you know, we had the discussion of like, Hey, you know, we're going to be super upfront with you. We're going to be super honest on anything that we see and you took all of that and ran with it which is awesome like you know if somebody's gonna produce a product and they don't want to hear any feedback on it that just doesn't work yeah um so we yeah um, and, and we're, I, we're i haven't even it. built a, i yeah go ahead what were you saying uh, we're just in love with the new workflow. And, um, so now we have, so Sam Robinson is our head steel 
welder. And then we have Ashley Netson who is doing all of our prep and tacking on frames now. And so we have two people addition, like additionally to me that um, are working through that fixture daily. So it's not just like the same person setting up the same, the fixture every time it's, it's a couple different people. And so something that's um, simple to set up, you know, straightforward and repeats well every time is huge. Um, and now that Ashley is tacking frames, she's able to set up this fixture simply and it's, you know, going into the same, um, same position as the last time we set it up there. There's just no more guessing. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a simple process. We've, we've added a couple of things to your fixture to improve our life, but we're machine shop. That's the way it works. Like you don't always need to buy the, um, like Cadillac of fixtures where it has like every single possible option and, you know, all the, the craziness that expensive frame fixtures are like, um, it's very application specific and you did a really good job of making a, a frame fixture with a great backbone to uh, grow into, you know, better things. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I appreciate the kind words and uh, yeah, I mean, when I was doing that, the early adopter sort of prototyping phase, I had used for years, uh, a similar idea of a fixture that was just more crude. And so I knew how it worked and I knew that it did work, but I had just done a whole bunch of little changes and improvements and I wanted to get other people's feedback. And so like, there's a perfect opportunity to get it to you. Cause I think a week after I, you guys had it, you had already put like 20 frames through it or something, or I don't know, but like it was, it was a lot that you guys had put through there in a relatively short period of time. And so I knew first of all that like, nothing monumental must be wrong with it because uh, you guys were getting good stuff out of it. But then you also had some notes and I tried to address all that stuff. And then I sent update parts a little bit later. And, uh, you know, it's very helpful because it's like, on the one hand, it's an expensive project to develop and I can't just develop it forever and ever and ever. But on the other hand, it would almost be more expensive to just send it with really kind of crappy half-baked stuff and then have it like ruin the reputation of your company and just like you just piss <laughs> off all your customers and have something that was no good. And, you know, so it's like you need I need the help with that because I don't really build bikes anymore. I've built it enough to know the basics and I study it a lot and I talk to a lot of people about it. But I, I need a little bit of help, too, you know, and so that's, yeah, really helpful. Yeah. And, you know, we're we're glad to see some new companies come into the frame building world, you especially where you, um, yeah, it doesn't matter that you just built a couple frames. You built a couple frames and realized that there was better tools needed to make people's lives simpler. And you're doing a great job of it. Like you're, you're coming in with a fresh set of eyes on the industry and you're coming out with, you know, some cool, you know, the miter daddy and, and the the braze clamps like those are just good products that that we needed that nobody i guess knew that we needed and then you manufactured them pretty simply and the price is good on them and it's obvious that a lot of people are are stoked on it yeah 
Yeah, man. Thanks for all. Yeah, you're just pumping me up here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we'll yeah, dude. It up. I mean, well, anyway, making good stuff. And... Yeah, I intend to. We got lots of additional stuff coming on the frame fixture: a proper stand, chainstay locators, and and assisters to help all that stuff. All the head tube and bottom bracket adapters, better content, better web page. I feel like yeah, uh, that, like I'm campaigning for. The stand is, is looking good. Um, the, that's, that's one thing that like, even, um, even a shop like ours where, where we, um, Sam, Sam came from a architectural welding company in Boulder and I came from, you know, just having my own fabrication business. And, and like when we got your fixture in, in the mail, it's like, well, we've got this really badass fixture, but we, it's like a really awkward shape and you can't really like set it on a table and put a frame in it. Like you got to build a stand. So I'm, yep. I'm glad you're, you're uh, catching a stride with that stand. And I think that's going to be an awesome, awesome add on for, for everybody to buy your fixture with a, a really badass stand that has all of the same you know, attention to detail on the design to make a good product. Yeah, that's been tough because in my mind, I don't think of fabricated simple stuff like stands as being that valuable. And now that I have to make it and I'm comparing the time and the resources that go into making that versus making other machine components, I'm like, I'm like, so if I wanted to make the same money off of this, I would have to charge this much. And it's like an astronomical number that nobody would pay that much for. And so I'm like, I'm constantly like, basically it won't like customers of the frame fixture won't be paying the full price of that when, you know, it just all comes together. And so it's like, I'm just, I'm basically, it's like you take a loss on the one part just so that you can service your customer on the whole package, basically. Uh, because like, if you don't have a good stand, the frame fixture is just not that useful and you can't expect your customer to like do it themselves. It's a really big job oh, to do a good job of it. 100%. I spent like, we got your fixture and like, you know, in the photos it looks big and then you get it and you're like, Whoa, this is, this is rad. <laughs> and like, how am I going to hold this? And I spent, I mean, I spent a week, I over-engineered the shit out of our stand and like made it way too complicated and, and made it look pretty and everything. But I spent a week, like pretty much a week solid making our stand for the frame fixture. But we're also in the, we have the case of we need to use it a lot and we are going to touch it every single day. So we might as well invest into making it look good, feel good and, and work good because it's, that's, yeah. you know, our business. We, you know, we have to use that for every bike that goes out the door. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, okay. So it is, this is getting to be a long one, so I should wrap it up for real. I feel like I've used this ending language a couple times, but, uh, anyway, uh, keep rocking and rolling, man. You're a sick rider, sick fabricator. Glad that you got to tell your story. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Joe. It's uh, been awesome talking with you. I'm sure we're going to continue this conversation more than just the podcast. So uh, keep doing what you're doing, and we'll keep chatting.
Yep. See you, dude.